Hi, and welcome to the Overland Adventure Travel Podcast, where we talk to overlanders about their experiences travelling through countries and places not very easy to get to. My name is Andy Bambach, and I've spent many years overland travelling around the world, squeezing into overloaded local transport with chickens and goats and matatus, rickshaws, buses, ferries, planes and trains. I've hitchhiked in Kenya and trekked in Nepal, observing different ways of living, some crazy cultures and religions, and the wild animals' ways, while camping by a fire under a canopy of stars in nature. I have used and abused my own vehicles purchased and sold in faraway countries, and hired cars, sometimes treating them like four-wheel drives, when they definitely were not. I love independent travel, but I also love a shared overlanding experience. Remote travelling with friends and family builds shared memories of good times, challenges and hardships we collectively overcome. I also love group travel in overland trucks. Every Australian winter I leave my filmmaking world and head to the north of Western Australia and guide tours in overland trucks through the remote Kimberley on the Gibber Road and Mitchell Plateau. This amazing remote country has strong indigenous connections to the land and country and features Guion Guion and Wanjana rock art. My favourite Kimberley tree is the Boab tree, especially the ancient ones. Camping under a Boab tree connects me to my love of the African Boabab tree. I got the overland truck travel bug from a 16-week Backroads of Asia overland camping journey from Kathmandu to London via the Middle East. That took me to places like Pakistan, Iran and Syria that are difficult countries to visit independently overland. In the early 90s I spent a couple of years leading tours around East Africa in four-wheel drive ex-German army MAN trucks with 18 passengers and a couple of crew. These camping trips were for 18 to 35 year olds so they were big on adventure and big on partying. As long as we went to the places mentioned in the brochure and arrived at our destination relatively on time, we were free to explore new routes, often free camping where we found ourselves before sundown while seeing the amazing African wildlife and diverse cultures. One of the great things about being Overland crew was the camaraderie between the crew from whatever company they happened to work for. We would get drunk together and share information about new places to check out using maps and landmarks to get there. Muzzer and Patch are a couple of overlanders who ran African overland trips for many years before running their own fleet of overland trucks. And today we're talking to Helen Patchett, who has just written a fantastic book, I Didn't Come to Africa for a Normal Life, 25 Years of Overlanding in Africa. First of all, thank you so much, Helen, for being part of the inaugural podcast. You have just written quite a magnificent book, I Didn't Come to Africa for a Normal Life. What inspired you to write this book? I've been writing for that book for 25 years on and off, and every seven years or so I pick it up, and um, I have a different outlook on life and a different view on life, and my life has progressed and overlanding has changed. Because I worked in the overland industry up until 2013, I just thought it was time to put down on paper what it used to be like in the good old, bad old days, or whichever way you want to look at it. (laughs) Not that I was there from the beginning by any means. There was much more weird and crazy characters doing weird and crazy stuff way before me. But Mm. yes, it just seemed the right time. Obviously, COVID helped. Yeah, it gave you a bit of time to write, I guess. Yes. 
So if I can just take you back to where you first started getting involved with Overlanding, which was on a trip as a passenger, I believe, back in 89. Is that correct? Yes. I did four years degree in university and decided I wasn't ready for that whole nine to five mortgage 2.2 kids thing (laughs) and picked up a brochure in the student travel shop that had a very innocuous cover but the words hit home quite strongly and the brochure cover basically said one day you will have a nice sensible life and a nice sensible house one day exclamation mark I thought oh I'll have a look at that and one thing led to another and I booked a six-month overland trip from London to Harare through West Africa and East Africa. Yeah fantastic. So you decided to go on this overland travel journey and I think first of all you met up with Muzza and Don at the workshop where they were trying to fix the truck? Yeah, they were building the truck on a farm outside a little village called Wheatley in Oxfordshire and there were half a dozen overland trucks there all in various states of disrepair and a few double-decker buses, the bright orange and white ones that Top Deck used to take to Asia. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I turned up, we had a cab and a tray, which is the flat bed of the back of the truck, and one side, and that was it. And I was thinking, how are we going to get 14 of us from here to Zimbabwe? Because it wasn't even built. Yeah, that was a real eye-opener to me, meeting all these Australian, New Zealand people that I'd never met before, in, you know, covered in grease, swearing, truck parts everywhere. Oh my gosh, it was like a, yeah, I did wonder what I'd let myself in for. <laughs> but you did go through with it. I did. So you met up with all your fellow passengers in London and set off on your journey. Yeah, as was the case back in those days, which was 89, Mm -hmm. you had a pre-departure meeting, normally in some Antipodean hotel in Earl's Court in London, Mm -hmm. a month before departure, and you all got to know each other, and the crew made sure that, you know, everybody knew what was going on and what they were letting themselves in for. (laughs) And then a month later, rainy night, October, cold, we departed from Earl's Court to the British coast to get a ferry across to Spain. And so your first night camping was in Spain, where you got to sort of learn about the truck? Yes. After a very rough ferry crossing, I think I spent most <laughs> of my time sleeping, we, we camped in a field in the middle of nowhere in northern Spain. It was very surreal. I've done lots of camping in, in my youth. Mm-hmm. The other guys that had never camped before. Trying to find out where all your kit is on an overland truck. It's, you know, tents, stalls. You then had to get down through Spain into Morocco. Yes, I'd never been to Benidorm before. It's one of those famous British holiday resorts. (laughs) And I wish I'd taken more use of the facilities and the hot water because for the next few months we had very limited hot water and very limited water coming out of a tap. But yes, the, the transit across Spain was easy, long days, because the trucks only do 60 kilometres an hour. Yes. It was the easy bit. And then we got the second ferry, of course, from Gibraltar to Ceuta, which is a, one of the Spanish enclaves on the northern African coast inside Morocco. So that first crossing into Morocco was like your first encounter with interesting borders to get through? Yeah, when you grow up in Europe, you do lots of borders, you know, in those days before the EU, we always, you know, you had to get your passport stamped and change your money and stuff like that. But it was all very civilised with, you know, that whole first world politeness and no one's pushing. And so going into Morocco was just chaos because everybody transit, lots of foot passengers go from Morocco to Ceuta to go shopping Mm. and they haven't got passports or they've got little bits of travel documents. And yeah, it was one of those... Crazy, crazy borders that I've now kind of got used to after many, many <laughs> years of 
going up and down and round in circles. But yes, it was a real eye-opener to people like me that were uninitiated to the African crazy chaos of border posts. Just a crazy border like every other. At the time, I thought it was a bit long drawn out procedure and, mm. you know, nothing really made sense because I didn't read Arabic or speak French that well. Yeah. But in retrospect... It was quite a quick border at two and a half hours. And one of our passengers, a Dutch guy, didn't have a visa. So he got kicked back. He had to go back to Spain to get a visa. Hmm. It was all in the days before internet and mobile phones. So gosh knows how he found us when he managed to get himself back into Morocco. But apart from losing Pete's to the fact that he didn't have the right documentation, we were through in two and a half hours. I thought that took forever. <laughs> but no, it was actually quite quick. <laughs> Indeed. You had problems then finding out that you couldn't get into Algeria overland if you were on a Brit passport and you had to fly in. There was some bizarre ruling that had come in that British people weren't allowed into Algeria over land borders. No one really understood did it, <laughs> particularly not the Moroccans. So there was four trucks all transiting down to Nairobi at the same time and we all ended up in Fez, in the campsite in Fez, with airline tickets to fly into Algeria we actually had to wait for 10 days, so we did a little tour of uh, Morocco. But And the others, I don't know when they turned up. So there was 40 of us flying into uh, Algeria, and it was very bizarre. All the trucks just drove in. One of the trucks, all the passengers and the driver was British, so he had to find somebody else to drive his truck into Algeria. Oh, right. That's a hassle. It was one of those very strange African rules and regulations that doesn't make a huge amount of sense sometimes. Mm. Were there highlights in Morocco before you had to fly into Algeria? Yeah, the old towns of Morocco and the Medinas, they're just, they're so historical, just amazing places to go wandering around and, and shopping and picking up interesting bits of food. And, and the sand dunes are stunning. You know, they're not as big as Algeria or Namibia, but they were just stunning. And mm. we went to places that nowadays are quite a bit more touristy, but back then we were the only people like Todja Gorge and Mescus Oasis. Yeah, Morocco's an amazing place. You know, they've got the Atlas Mountains and they've got the Sahara. So, no, we definitely made the most of our 10 days travelling around. Yeah, fantastic. Before we go on to talking about Algeria, maybe we should actually talk about the vehicle. So the vehicle that you were travelling in was an MAN converted ex-army truck that they were building in London for the, for the trip. Later to be called Scott. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which I ended up going in quite a lot, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, okay. A lot of fun, that truck. Yeah. For those that are listening that know nothing about overlanding, can you describe the layout of the truck and what it was like to be a passenger on a truck like that? Well, back in those days, it was all quite a new industry and wasn't quite so many rules and regulations as there are now. So basically, (laughs) the MAN was a square nose MAN. The seats on the back had all been purpose-built by the company. So the front of the back of the truck, we had image-facing seats that we called the dance floor, (laughs) and they folded down to make a double bed. And underneath that dance floor, we had our fridge. Some people didn't have fridges. We were a bit posh. posh. So we had our fridge and all the veggie boxes and stuff like that. And then towards the back of the truck, we had forward-facing seats, coach seats. They were quite – they were very comfortable. There was no roof on the truck. It was just a couple of metal bars that supported a tarpaulin. The sides were also tarpaulin. So depending on the weather, they were either rolled up completely, rolled back completely or down. And then underneath the floor, there were some secret lockers where contraband (laughs) may or may not have been moved from north to the south. (laughs) Yeah, mainly it was it was mainly excess food and lots of truck parts, actually nothing 
too serious. Yeah. Um, and underneath the truck itself, there was lockers for stalls and lockers for tents and passengers' back luggage and toolboxes and call boxes. And at the back of the truck, there was pots and pans in the kitchen and boxes full of food and herbs and spices and cereal and flour to make pancakes and all sorts of <laughs> everything you could want in the kitchen was there. So very cleverly designed. I think they'd call them all-terrain vehicles now. People movers of note, they were. Yeah, and quite comfortable, especially game drives, when you were able to look out at the animals from sitting up on your platform, looking straight out at them. It was amazing. Yeah, brilliant for game drives, looking over everybody else's vehicles or, look, you know, <laughs> your, your eye, elephant eye heights and the birds were just spectacular, yeah. And four by four, obviously, they just went anywhere. Yeah. They pulled out other trucks at big bog holes in Zaire and coped with all the sand in the Sahara and the Namibia. They were, oh, brilliant truck. Yeah. And, uh, but not allowed to be used today, unfortunately. No, that's for sure. That's definitely the case. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a, a place in time. <laughs> being able to use those sorts of vehicles and free camp and all that sort of stuff that we used to be able to do. Yeah, today things have changed so much. And, you know, the the overland vehicles today are more like coaches. Most of them don't have four-wheel drive. They've got seat belts, massive battery packs so people can charge their mobile phones, USBs in the seats, all that fancy stuff, posh roofs, air conditioning. The industry's changed so much and the trips have had to change and adjust. They're shorter, faster. People get up earlier and go to bed later just to cover the distances. The early 90s and before were the glory days of being able to travel and free camp everywhere and have a lot more freedom than what was to follow after that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Today it's all very, very strict and regulated and all these permits and oh, it was just complete freedom back then. Yeah, great window in time. I think a lot of people that have read the book I have to keep reminding people that they come back and do this job again 30 years later. It's not the same. You know, no. the, the, the places aren't the same. Africa's a lot more populated, a lot more developed. The, the clients are different. Their expectations are different. You know, we never knew what um, vegan vegans were or, you know, we, we sort of could do peanut intolerances and lactose intolerance. And now some of the African cooks can't get their head around a vegetarian. <laughs> In the old days, the first question would be, where's the bar or where's the showers today the first question is what's the internet code quite different passengers yeah completely different yeah different industry completely yep let's go back to algeria because that was the very first time you guys got to travel through the sahara for you anyway yes what was that like i was just fascinated i'd always thought deserts were like great big sand dunes everywhere but they're not there's so many differences in the landscapes flat plains and the big sand dunes i wasn't expecting the snow and sleet i have to say it wasn't on my list of things that happen in the middle of a desert it was beautiful the sunsets and the sunrises and the scenery you know you think if you're traveling that big distance you'd get bored with the scenery but it just the colors change with every hour and the, the oasis towns, it was beautiful. The Hoga Mountains in the south, Algeria is a lovely, amazing country. I went back there about 20 years later. There's been a lot of development there with various industries. What we used to call the pistes, which were the, which were the sand tracks that everyone followed. You know, yep. there was a lot of tarmac road. And it's, it's like the rest of the world. Everything has progressed so quickly in the last 30 years that all the th- things that we did there aren't possible also it did become after we went through in 89 90 91 it did become 
quite volatile and overland trips had to stop going through the Sahara and, yeah. and instead reroute down through East Africa. It was so, a, another window in time that you were very lucky to be part of. Yeah. yeah. And it would have been quite yeah. tricky to travel through that way without being in an overland vehicle. Well, I'd like to think we were like big rufty tufty overland drivers <laughs> until that time that we were in a very remote i think the last the town behind us was 60 k's away and the t- town in front of us was 80 k's or something and you know you, you think you have this roughy tufty thing and then you see this on the horizon this dot and it turns out to be some mad asian cyclist that's come <laughs> from nairobi and is cycling to the mediterranean and he's got hardly any water he's run out of food and you're thinking okay Okay, we're not quite so roughy tufty. He's <laughs> mad as a box of frogs. <laughs> yeah, quite amazing those sorts of uh, uh, journeys in short. Okay. So then you went into um, Nigeria. In your book, you talk about having to collect wood in in a place called Kano, I think it is, uh, in a roundabout. That sounds a bit yeah crazy. Was wood very hard to come by or something? Well, when you spend two weeks in the Sahara, you do get a bit wood obsessed. <laughs> Overlanding makes you quite obsessed about strange things. One of them is collecting firewood and the other one is containers, plastic containers. So, yeah, somebody had obviously dropped some firewood in uh, Kano, which is the northern town in Nigeria. Mm-hmm. Um, it is still Sahal. It's not the Sahara, but it's very dry up there. Yeah. And our drivers, for some strange reason, decided it would be a good idea to uh, try and... Uh, pick it up from this crazy, crazy roundabout, which is like four or five lanes deep, but should have been three lanes deep. Anyway, thankfully we didn't get run over. People were obviously used to strange white tourists wandering around the busiest roundabout in the whole of the city. <laughs> I'm sure. That so, you had a good fire afterwards, I presume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, firewood. Firewood and plastic containers. Oh, gosh, I still have an issue with both of them. <laughs> Then you went to Yankari National Park, where you first saw elephants on your trip. Yeah, that was amazing. That was our first game park. We were all suitably excited because I think the majority of people that visit Africa do so primarily to see the big five or yeah. the small five. It's normally your return clients that have done quite a few parks that start looking at different parts of tourism in Africa. It's amazing to see your first elephant. You know, you see them on the telly and you read about them and you hear about them from friends or whatever. But when you're actually there seeing them, it's just amazing. Sitting on the top of a truck, having a beer, watching the sunset, and these huge, great big animals are just quietly, because you can't believe how quiet they are, Mm. passing by on their way to wherever they're going, getting a drink or whatever. I don't think Yankari is high on the list of most people that want to see game in Africa, and only the eastern southern Africa game parks. The biggest thing for us was, because Nigeria is one of the most populated I think it is the most populated country in Africa. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the Sahara, where we hardly saw anyone for two weeks, and then going into Niger and Nigeria to these big, this big city with, you know, suburbia sprawling for miles and miles and miles. Of, it was it was a bit of a shock to the system. A bit of a culture shock. <laughs> yeah, real culture shock. You know, mm. another notable thing about Nigeria was the price of fuel which they had a bit of a black market in those days. Yeah. Fuel wasn't necessarily that expensive to start with. It was quite cheap. But we managed to pick up fuel. I think it worked out at 4p a litre or something ridiculous. And the track only did four kilometres a litre. So we were always on the lookout for cheap fuel. So Nigeria 
came to the party with that one. Later on, when you became a tour leader, that then you could start playing with the prices of fuel in various countries and exchange rates and that sort of thing. That was an introduction to it, I guess. <laughs> when we had 16 trucks later on, we were very, you know, we were constantly saying to our crew, okay, fill up in Botswana and not in Zambia or fill yep. up in Namibia, you know, because it makes a huge difference when the trucks aren't, you know, you get a lot of fuel. They're your biggest expense, wages and fuel. Yeah. You got to then go into the Cameroon where you saw some more elephants, I think, in a place called Waza. Oh, yeah. Waza National Park in the Cameroon. Not so popular park for the average Africa tourist, understandably so. Yeah. We went to see, well, Waza National Park was amazing. The elephants there, and I don't, I am going back 30 years, yes. were prolific. We just sat at the waterhole pretty much all day and watched herd after herd come through. And it was just idyllic. We were the only people in the whole park. How wonderful. We shared the campsite with one other vehicle, which had a bit of a baboon problem because <laughs> baboons are nasty, nasty foragers and they do like to take opportunities. So they sort of managed to get into this other vehicle and, and spray flour and eggs and all sorts <laughs> of stuff everywhere. I felt so sorry for the owners of it. It looked complete yeah. chaos. But yeah, Cameroon, Cameroon was beautiful. It's a beautiful country. We didn't stay there long enough, unfortunately, but beautiful country. You did get an introduction to roadblocks, actually, I think, in the Cameroon, didn't you? Yes, our first of many lessons yes. on various roadblocks, yes, which are a bit of an Africa phenomenon. Mm. Well, no, no, that's probably a lie. They're, they are all over Africa, as I'm sure they are all over quite a lot of other countries. Our first roadblock, because we had the sides of the track rolled back and the top rolled back yeah because fantastic. it was very hot yeah <laughs> like a convertible like a convertible we were going <laughs> through the Rimsiki mountains which are beautiful they're just mm. like these volcanic plugs all the volcanoes sort of eroded over time and you just have these plugs sticking up everywhere they're just stunning okay. and the yeah the police decided that I couldn't I wasn't allowed to sit in the back of the truck with my bikini top on and they got quite abusive so I grabbed the nearest t-shirt I could from the nearest person and yeah. stuck that on and then a bit a bit further on, we got stopped again, and I can't remember what they wanted. Well, obviously wanted a bribe, but we weren't really into doing that. All the crew didn't really do any bribing. There was a no-bribe policy, wasn't it? Yeah, there was a no-bribe policy, and we took it quite seriously. All the crew took it seriously yes. because we had a lot of time. And I've seen it happen in various countries in East and Southern Africa now. Yeah, People want something done quickly. So it's one cigarette, one beer, one dollar. Yeah. And then the guy thinks, oh, that was easy. Let me just um, annoy the next person. Two cigarettes, two beers, two dollars. Yeah. And then and before escalates. you know it, it's like yeah. a carton of cigarettes, a carton of beer, 200 bucks. And it just perpetuates the problem so badly. And you, you then get this class of authority who won't do anything unless they get paid, basically. And you have people that can't pay. Bribing and that type of stuff is just the worst. Cameroon uses a currency called SAFA, mm -hmm. Central African Franc, or, which is an amazing currency that they use throughout West Africa and is, was linked to the French franc. But, so I guess for those people that were born post-Euro in Europe yep. or anybody that was born in the Southern Hemisphere, that meant you could travel around from one country to the other and not worry about going to a bank or trying to find money because you couldn't just 
use the ATM because they didn't exist and you couldn't <laughs> tap your card on the point of sale machine because they didn't exist. <laughs> so you had to go to the bank and you had to queue up and you had to do this unless you changed on the back market. So the safer was like the euro these days. It just made travel between the countries that traded in the, the Central African franc so yes. easy. You could take it with you from one country to the next. You had then a problem getting into the Central African Republic on the border. There was some guy that wasn't around to stamp the passports or something, or the carne. Yeah, yeah, that was our first time that we camped on a border. It wasn't our last, but it was the first. I read a brilliant book from a guy in Uganda once called The Man with the Key is Gone, which is something we can't conceptualise. As in the in the Western world, but over, over there at that time, the immigration guy was the only one with the key to the office, and he, for some reason, wasn't around. And this could be a multitude of reasons. And in this book that I'm talking about, the doctor that wrote it, one chapter started. I naively put a morning aside to register my car. Five months, three weeks, and two days later, <laughs> I got the job done. <laughs> so the man with the key is gone. And the customs guy didn't know where they'd gone, so we, we couldn't get our passport stamp. So we ended up putting up tents, camping, waiting for the guy to turn up. Eventually he turned up the next morning very late and very hungover. We'd been on that particular border post for 36 hours by the time we left, which made the two and a half hours in Morocco seem like a breeze. We, he eventually stamped our passports. In Africa, so they have these booms over the road at borders which is to stop you going through. So he was sort of draped over this thing as we tried to exit the country, having taken down our tents and packed away in record time. And he wanted some headache tablets. So my driver, Mazza, yep. um, he, he's normally very patient, but sometimes his tolerance levels do go a little astray. <laughs> anyway, the immigration guy got one, one paracetamol off and four or five laxatives. So that probably <laughs> didn't make his day. No, probably not. Um, <laughs> but you didn't hang uh, around to find we out. We were a bit miffed. That he, <laughs> we didn't hang around to find out, and we was a bit miffed that he'd made us wait 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> then you were heading towards Bangui, and the road suddenly became really, really bad from then on. Yeah, Central Africa, because of the rains, and they have very strong, rainy, big rainy seasons and very low maintenance the roads in CAR and Zaire are just appalling. <laughs> CAR wasn't as bad as Zaire, but yeah, it was still a bit not the best. So you also got introduced in the CAR because the road was so slow going to Bangui that people were coming with charred monkeys on sticks and things like that, bush meat, so, which uh, must have been quite something. Yeah, you know, when you grow up in the UK, we're not big on red meat eating. You know, we do a lot of white meat meat yep. eating and it's vice versa you know in New Zealand they do a lot of red meat eating so yeah um, because there's so much poverty in CR it's a very poor country bushmeat they survive on bushmeat so because we were av- sometimes averaging four or five k's an hour you know they can hear you coming from miles around because there's not a lot of vehicles they'd, be, they'd come running out and with monkeys on sticks and what sells them to us and it was just heart-wrenching you know heart-wrenching because who wants to see a monkey in that state Mm. and heart-wrenching because these people are so desperate that they have to resort to that type of nutrition 
I haven't ever eaten monkey. It's not anything I want to do. No. But I can fully understand why, because of the state of the economies of some of these countries, one yeah. has to resort to such stuff. So now we're uh, we're heading into Zaire. For you guys to get into Zaire, you actually had to put the truck on a ferry. Zaire is an amazing country. So we we drove from Bangui along along a terrible road to <laughs> um, Bangasu on the northern shore of the Bangui River. Mm-hmm. And we have to put the truck on the ferry to go across to Zaire, which is now called DRC. And it's one of, you know, it's not a ferry that we, that immediately comes to mind when you've traveled around England or Greece or wherever. Yep. It's more of a pontoon with a um, couple of uh, rails on the side to stop you falling off that are a bit wobbly and an engine and a, some very big ropes that tie you up to the, the land so we you, you push the, you, the truck drives onto the ferry and then as soon as you make contact with the front wheels the back wheels start pushing it into the river and you have to hope for dear god that you uh, make it onto the ferry before the, the ropes give way it was designed for two thankfully we were the only one on there yes. once we've got on, on all the foot passengers come on and it's chaos you know you can't hardly move and obviously there's a weight limit which means absolutely nothing and the engine starts and there's black smoke going everywhere. And we were thinking, are we ever going to make it across the other side? And as soon as they let off the mooring ropes, the r- flow of the river is so strong that you actually you drift down the river really fast as it tries to track across the, to the other bank. And then you have to hug the bank back up to the next mooring in Zaire. It was a very nerve-wracking river crossing. It definitely wasn't our first. We crossed that river a couple of times. But, yeah, it's not something that you put on your want-to-do list. And then you came across a little sort of oasis kind of town that had perfectly tarred roads and... Oh, yeah, Gabadalite. Gabadalite is the home of Mobutu Sesisiko, who was Africa's kleptomaniac of note. And... Because it was his hometown, he decided he was going to build a palace. It was called the Versailles of Africa because this palace was massive. It employed 700 staff, various heads of state stayed there. The town had tarmac roads and streetlights and air-conditioned shops selling food that none of the locals could ever dream of affording. There was banks and all sorts of first-world luxuries. But you went into the bank and the tellers sort of trying not to fall asleep they said sorry we have no money you must go out onto the street or go to the supermarket (laughs) so you go out onto the street or go to the supermarket to change your US dollars into Zaire's and I can't remember how much we got that time I think we got about 3 million to 1 crazy figures crazy figures yeah and over time you know we used to go into Zaire quite a lot but from the east if you went to a bar and bought a beer you knew what the exchange rate was to the US dollar because the Primus beer, which was 50% owned by Heineken and made from rice, which was lethal to drink. It was not so much because it was um, strong. It was only 5%, but because it was a very large bottle and if you didn't drink it, it would get cold. <laughs> you could go to a bar, buy a Primus, and you knew that that was one US dollar and that was the exchange rate. So that was the only way you had, anyone had any idea what the exchange rate was, was to um, buy beer. Yeah, no, I love the idea that a, a premise is a dollar and, and so that was kind of what you could base everything on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you stopped at a coffee plantation with friendly villagers? Yeah, we had to wander into the village and find the village chief. You know, driving through Zaire, the roads are absolutely appalling and the rainforest is just phenomenal. You have these massive trees and 
big forest of bamboo and trying to find somewhere to camp you know you if you're lucky you average 10 kilometers an hour yep. or 100 kilometers a day trying to find somewhere to bush camp uh, is, is a nightmare so it, you either have to go into schools where you get like bombarded by over enthusiastic children because it's just like the city's turned up because none of these places have electricity or anything so you know you'd bush camp and you'd have like 300 or 200 kids there and they'd want to listen to the music and dance and stuff so it was either schools churches or whatever you could find quarries were another one but this particular day we couldn't find anything so we ended up parking in this tiny little flat piece of land on this coffee plantation and we had to go and find the local headman to ask if it was okay he was just flabbergasted he you know he must have thought that the aliens had landed with these 16 white people in this track with electricity and all sorts of stuff it was a you know interacting with the was with the local residents of some of these countries was yes. part of the best bit of traveling for me mm. it was absolutely fabulous so he he gave us our okay. Thankfully, we had a Canadian with us who spoke, spoke fluent French. So she was brilliant at liaising with all these, all, all the people that didn't. Well, you know, there's so many African languages in yes. um, Africa. That you can't even you can't even hope to converse. I think there's 200 languages in Zaire or something. Um, so she was a god's absolute godsend. Anyway, he disappeared, came back with about 20 other people, <laughs> as is normally the case when you push camp and just stands there. And it's like having television. You know, they don't have television, or they didn't back then. So, so you know, you were something to look at. You just watch this, <laughs> yeah. this alien invasion that's landed on the edge of the, the coffee plantation. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. And um, <laughs> I guess coming from London down now into Zaire, you probably didn't do too many campsites. It was probably all bush camps, most of it, I, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, definitely. In the big cities, there's sort of um, campsites per site. There are campsites, but they're sort of government run. There wasn't so much private stuff back then. And, you know, we had to make sure we got water as often as we could. It used to, we ne you needed to top up the water tanks every yeah. three days. So, We'd always have to find somewhere that had water, whether it was a petrol station or a river, and we'd all have to stand in a row with buckets and, <laughs> and pots and saucepans and fill up the tank. Yeah. Um, but yeah, through Zaire, very, very limited campsites. I think we had one in Kisangani on the sort of eastern side, Ipulu, and a couple on the Batembo Road that goes runs parallel to the Ruanzori Mountains on the eastern side of the country. But yeah, we were in Zaire for a month, and we would have bush camped I don't know, 22, 25 times. Yep. There's just no option. No, no. Fantastic. And then you travelled down to, is it Bumba, uh, where you guys hopped on a boat and left the truck? Yes. The roads in Zaire are appalling. <laughs> and uh, the Zaire River is used to be, and probably still is to some extent, the main way that people travel east-west along the country. And there used to be steam, paddle steamers um, and all sorts of various other boats and ships that went from Kinshasa, the capital in the east, along to Kisangani. After that, you couldn't travel because there was a whole load of cataracts that stopped boats going anywhere. Yeah. But all those paddle steamers disappeared through years of lack of maintenance and stuff like that. So we got this barge from Bumba and spent four or five days traveling down the river with I think there was four French motorcyclists and us, the captain, his wife, and the kids, quite a few charred monkeys. It was just the most amazing experience, spending four days traveling up the Zaire River. It was just very surreal. It was a fabulous experience. Absolutely loved it. You know, it was the first time we'd sat still for 
four days. Yes. Because when, when you're moving, it's like tent, tents up, tents down, cook, wash up, cook again, wash up, move, tents up, tents down. <laughs> it's like, it was quite relaxing. The, there was a bit of a routine on the truck, wasn't it? Sort of six for seven for eight type of thing. We had a six for seven for eight. And I think a lot of the trucks at the time had that same routine sort of depending on, because all the crew do things slightly differently. And then you had your first encounter with a thief in Kisangani? In the market, doing the food shop for the truck, on the trucks, everyone was in different groups. So you took it in turn to cook, wash wash up, clean the truck. Um, We were on cooking. We loved Kisangani because it almost had tarmac and it had some electricity. And there was a few sort of Greek shops that had nice bits and pieces. So, But we always bought our vegetables from, and breads and stuff like that from the market, fruit from the market. So we were down, Alison and I were down in the market shopping. And I suddenly realized that um, some chappy had his hands in my shorts pocket looking for some cash. My dad was a policeman, so he yeah. taught me some self-defense stuff. So I grabbed his hands and um, shouted, thief. Bearing in mind, we are the only white people in the whole of the market. We got this mob ran at us, and I was a bit scared as to what was going to happen. And they grabbed this poor thief, dragged him away, got the money out of his hands. Someone gave it back to me, and then mm-hmm. proceeded to thump him. And I've seen this before as well. I've seen it since in various other places. It's like um, mob justice. They know there's no police around. Yeah. They don't want to be robbed. They don't want robbers in their midst. And they just do what they think is right to stop people that they don't want in their space. It was quite horrific to witness, actually. But, yeah, it's just uh, mob justice. They're doing their thing, trying to get rid of these guys. We were very well looked after by the mummers in the market. They were they dragged us away and sort of barricaded us, us away from the... But, yeah, it was mm, horrible. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that's what you have in the third world. And then when you were back on the road again, you had crazy roads like craters that were like 50 metres, muddy craters, and had to build bridges and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, Zaire is renowned for its appalling roads. You know, they used to have quite a lot of tarmac. Um, I think it was about 3,500 kilometres of tarmac pre-independence, but for some reason, you know, there wasn't the facilities to maintain that post-independence. So, yeah... That you know, people talk about potholes. I don't really know what you call them in Zaire because they're so deep that you can walk across the top of the track, which stands at like four meters high, and they're about fifty meters long, and they fill up with water in the rains. And you drive in, and and if you've got four wheel drive and have a good driver, they get out. But most of these trucks in Zaire aren't four wheel drive. They're overloaded. You know, they've completely exceeded their what the truck should be carrying. And they drive in and they just get stuck. And then all the trucks in either direction, of which there are not many, but when the truck's stuck there for four days, they do, you know, accumulate. So all the drivers and their helpers have to start unloading the heavy truck and try and get all this stuff off. And then someone has to try and pull it out. So a couple of times, because we were in a four by four, we were dragged along to pull the truck out because everyone's frustrated. They just want to get going because they're Mm. all running out of food and, you know, there's no clean water. So you'd go into the pothole or whatever your crater, whatever you want to call it, tie up to the truck that's stuck we'd reverse and we'd pull it out but then as we pulled it out the next one would go in behind it so you do this three or four five six times and then our drivers would get okay we're enough now so we'd have to stand in front of these big trucks revving their engines and belching smoke because they also wanted obviously to get pulled out of the mud 
and wait for our truck to pull a truck out, overtake it, get into the hole and come out the other side. That happens frequently in Zaire in the rainy season. And then bridges. Bridges are another classic. You know, we got to a very spectacular bridge across this 50, 100-meter river, 30 meters up. It looked stunning, but a closer inspection, there was nothing on the bottom of the bridge apart from the girders that they built it with. It would have been full of logs or planks and you used to drive across, but they'd all been taken away for firewood or building houses or something. And there was literally four planks left and you'd put the four planks down, drive the truck onto the two at the front, and then the two at the back you'd have to lift up and like jimmy around the side of the truck because it was only a single lane bridge. Try not to fall through the hole of the, the girders, which were two to three feet apart. Put the new planks in front of the truck and it would slowly make its way across the bridges like that. So that's another reason it took, took us four weeks to travel across Diane because the roads were appalling. There was no bridges. There was mud. And literally 100 kilometres a day at 10 k's an hour was a good day. Yeah. And I used to love Zaire myself. <laughs> I know. It's my favourite country. It's absolutely beautiful. That eastern side with the Ruinsori Mountains and, mm. you know, the volcanoes, that one that used to erupt all the time. Yeah. Oh, I love Zaire. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your recollections from your very first trip. But you then went on to become a tour guide yourself. How did that come about? So, yeah, we, we finished our, that trip, went from Zaire to Nairobi and finished in six weeks later in Harare. And mm. the driver and myself that had formed a relationship, he hitchhiked around South Africa and Namibia. And then we went our separate ways. So he carried on driving tracks and I went back to Europe and did all that sort of work that you do when you're not really committed to a proper life. <laughs> he bought a truck and contracted to a friend of his that owned another overland company. He left London, went to the Sahara and he didn't have a tour guide because I don't know why. <laughs> he didn't have one. He didn't have one. <laughs> he either left it too late or there was no one that wanted to do it or was stupid enough or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I was doing an operation rally in Guyana in South America and I get this message on the shortwave radio. I was radio up saying he'd run out of money. He didn't have a tour guide. Did I want to join him? So I was like, oh, that sounds like fun. Let me do that. So I flew out of Guyana. <laughs> back to London, spent four nights with my mum. I was filthy, shattered, exhausted. And on the fifth day, I, I flew into Niamey, which is the capital of Niger, which is just underneath the Sahara. Mm -hmm. Again, I really don't know how this happens before, you know, before mobile phones or Wi-Fi. It was all telex and fax and forward planning. And anyway, I flew in there and the truck turned up two days later and we went off to Mali and Ghana and Ivory Coast doing a West Africa loop. And I ended up working on the trucks for six years um, as a tour guide, taking people that used to be like me mm. around Africa on trips. The shortest trip in those days was four weeks, and the longest trip was 12 weeks, yeah. mainly East and Southern Africa. Mazu and I, the driver, Mazu and I did West Africa. We'd never been there before. So it was lots of winging it and reading a guidebook and talking to people on the road. And then we did Zaire again, and then from Nairobi down – We've done it before, so yeah. Nairobi to Harare and Cape Town. That was the easy part. Well, it wasn't easy. It was just easier. Language helped. People speak English as their, as their primary language of those countries as opposed to French, so that helped. That's right. And and on that point you just mentioned about, like, flagging someone down to find out what the road's like ahead and that sort of stuff, or meeting another truck coming the other way, that was invaluable for finding out the places to go and what was good and what was bad up ahead and that sort of thing? Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. If we ever saw another overland truck coming in the opposite direction, mm -hmm. you always used to stop 
in those days to find out well everything exchange rates where they'd camped who was where what who was doing what where was the best restaurant to go to who were they were using to do excursions the roads you know everything and uh, if it was sort of after three o'clock in the afternoon then you'd both just decide oh no we're going to camp here we don't yeah. want to carry on party two trucks partying together all the crew could like pick each other's brains it was like the internet but 20 times better because it was just <laughs> first-hand knowledge <laughs> yeah that was the only way we knew anything in those days yep and bbc world service that's right because all this was before the days of mobile phones and internet and all that sort of thing so quite often you'd go off into a situation with that and really knowing what was ahead yeah (laughs) in 94 we were stuck we were doing a lake tanganyika trip so we was at the bottom of lake tanganyika in zambia Mm. and we normally go up lake tanganyika also very bad road back then yes where the tetsi flies and the tetsi flies we all used to love it didn't we (laughs) indeed and we used to go into Burundi and then into Zaire and I remember we were sitting at Mpulungu which is the little port town at the bottom of Lake Tanganyika Hmm. listening to the BBC World Service radio because that was literally the only news we got and they're telling us of the problems that started in Burundi and Rwanda which Hmm. eventually escalated to become the worst genocide on record I believe if we hadn't had the BBC World Service, we would have got to the Burundian border, gone in if they'd let us in, and been stuck in some of the worst atrocities known to Africa. So that whole talking to other trucks was just, you, you know, you couldn't beat it. That's right. And the BBC World Service couldn't beat that either. <laughs> you obviously still live and love Africa. What is it you love about Africa? I live in Harare in Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe is not going through one of its better stages at the moment. Mm. A lot of people say, you know, how much worse can it get? I said, have you ever been to Zaire? (laughs) But what do I love about it? I think, you know, everyone agrees the weather is fantastic. We love the weather. We love the freedom and the big open spaces. And you can still camp and in the wilderness and be in the middle of nowhere with elephants walking past and the sunsets and the sunrises and the fantastic colors. And, you know, the, the people, the people that live here, they have got such hardships compared to what most people in the first world are used to. And they fight on a daily basis for the basics like electricity and water. Mm. But they smile and they're happy and they just, I just don't know how they, they do it. They, the people are amazing. But Africa has a bit of a hold on you. It's quite strange. No one really knows how to put their finger, you know, what is it that keeps us here? Mm. It really is, that is a very difficult answer. And I swear everyone's answer is different, but it's like a, it's a bit like a jug. You don't really want to give it up, but it doesn't really make sense. It's, it's just that quirky, crazy. And, you know, sometimes I talk to people, like today, I'm trying to get someone from the city of Harare to come and do some maintenance sort out a problem for me and he says oh but we don't have any diesel mm-hmm. so in order for him to get the job i have to drive there pick him up and bring him over because they have no diesel yeah. it's just so quirky it's just you just can't even put your finger on it it's bizarre it's just some quirky addiction <laughs> and on that happy note i'd like to thank you for talking on this inaugural podcast <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. And if you haven't read Helen Patchett's book, it's called I Didn't Come to Africa for a Normal Life. And it's got some of the stories you've heard and many, many more. It's a fantastic book and brought back so many memories of life on the road in the early 90s. Thank you for writing it and, uh, and for being part of this today. Thanks ever so much, Andy. Love talking to you. 